The title of the sermon here this morning is Honor in Humility. If you were asked what the greatest Christian virtue is, what would you say? Many people would say that love is the greatest Christian virtue. Some would say that kindness is, or patience is. Some might even say it's self-control. But I would argue that the greatest virtue that a Christian can have is humility. Listen to what Andrew Murray has said about humility. He says this, Humility, the place of entire dependence on God, is from the very nature of things the first duty and highest virtue of the creature and the root of every virtue. John Chrysostom said this, Humility is the root, mother, nurse, foundation, and bond of all virtue. Augustine said this, If you plan to build a tall house of virtues, you must first lay a deep foundation of humility. And this is what Jesus here is teaching the twelve again. Yes, I say again. Because if you've been with us now, as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, you'll realize and see, this isn't the first lesson that we've had. This is not the first study that we've had on humility. It wasn't long ago that Jesus was teaching His disciples, these guys, about humility. In fact, as time goes, it was just a few weeks earlier. Back in chapter 9, verse 34, it says, But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. These twelve are arguing with each other and discussing amongst each other who is the greatest. And then if you remember, Jesus grabs a child, tells a child to come over, and He uses this child as an illustration to teach His disciples about humility. But the guys need another lesson on humility. They didn't learn that time. In fact, they won't even learn this time. As Jesus is going to have to give them another lesson on humility at the final Passover meal. In John 13, we read that Jesus filled a basin with water and washed His disciples' feet. Do you remember that? Jesus doing that. And in verse 16, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. This is a very, very important lesson for these guys to learn. And this is a very important lesson for you and I to learn. We must learn humility. And I say that we need to learn it because it's not in our nature. Humility is not in our nature. Our sinful nature is to be prideful, to be selfish, to be egotistical. You don't have to teach a child to be selfish. Right? You don't have to teach that to them. It's in their nature. That's why the first words that they learn are, Mine. Why? Because they are selfish by nature. We have to teach them humility. And every one of us needs to learn humility. Because it's not in our nature. And so as we work our way through this passage here this morning, we're going to break it up into three sections. We're going to see, first of all, the selfish aspiration. The selfish aspiration. Second, we'll see the selfish reaction. And then third, we're going to see the selfless illustration. So let's pick up here in our first point this morning. The selfish aspiration. Look at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, 
You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, last week we saw how Jesus told the disciples for a third time that he was going to Jerusalem to die. And we saw the deity of Christ on display as he predicted the details of his own death. But what I didn't tell you last week was how the disciples responded to this prediction that Jesus gave about going to Jerusalem to go and die on a cross and raise again on the third day. Mark doesn't tell us the response of the disciples. But Luke does tell us their response. In Luke 18.34 it says this, But the disciples understood none of these things, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. It was as if Jesus was talking to a brick wall as he's predicting his death and resurrection. These guys understood nothing of what Jesus was telling them because it was divinely hidden from them so that they wouldn't understand it until after the resurrection of Christ. And the very fact that they did not understand what Jesus said is illustrated right here in this account that directly follows Jesus telling them that he is going to go to Jerusalem and die. This account right here shows us they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. What happened? Well, James and John come up to Jesus because they have a question for him. Notice in verse 35 where it says, James and John come up to Jesus. James and John, these two apostles, come up and they approach Jesus. But we have a parallel account of this in in Matthew. And in Matthew 20, 20, it says this, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. So Mark tells us it's James and John who come. We've got Matthew's account who says their mother came to ask this question. What's going on? Who asked this question? Was it James and John or was it their mother? Yes. It was all of them. They come up. James and John bring their mother into the picture and call on her to ask this question. Now, no doubt they wanted to ask this question as well, but they bring their mother in on the scene to come and ask this question. Now, who were James and John? Who were these guys? Well, these guys are called the sons of Zebedee. The sons of Zebedee. And Jesus also nicknamed them the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. These guys were very zealous and and passionate guys. They were go-getters who were also very close to Jesus. These guys were a part of what we call the inner circle. You've got the twelve, and then you've got the inner circle. The inner circle are three guys, Peter, James, and John. We saw them on the Mount of Transfiguration as they go up with Jesus there. These guys are close to Jesus. In fact, James and John are very close to Jesus because their mother and Jesus' mother, Mary, were actually sisters. They were sisters. In the account of the cross, John tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was standing there watching. And standing there with her was a woman whom John says is Mary's sister. Her sister is standing there watching Jesus die on the cross. Matthew tells us that one of the women was the mother of the sons of Zebedee. That's James and John, the sons of Zebedee. 
And then Mark actually gives us her name. Her name is Salome. And so we can conclude from these verses that Salome is the mother of James and John, who is also the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now why do we need to know this? Why is that important? Well, because it's very possible that James and John are using their mother and her relationship to Jesus. They're using the family tie here to get what they want. It's as if they're thinking, hey, if we can get mom to ask Jesus, well, Jesus isn't going to say no to his aunt. Using the family ties. This family connection. We're going to use the family connection, and through this family connection, we're going to get what we want. So let's call on mom which is a very deceitful and selfish thing to do. Very selfish. Surely Jesus will grant the wishes of mom. And so they come up to Jesus and ask him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, notice this is not a question. Notice there's no question mark at the end. They're not asking, will you do something for us, Jesus? It's not a question, but this is a statement. Why would they make a statement like this? One commentator says, perhaps because of an inner consciousness that their selfish request might be refused by Jesus, they sought to bind him in advance. It's as if going to Jesus and saying, please do Whatever we ask, just say yes now before we even ask the question. Will you do that, Jesus? Just say yes now. But Jesus doesn't buy into their selfish scheme. What happens next? Look in verse 36. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? Now, did Jesus know what these guys were going to ask? Of course he did. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's God in the flesh. He knew what these guys were going to ask. So why didn't Jesus just say, look, I know what you guys are going to ask, and the answer is no. You ever done that with your children? Yeah, they come up to you. Dad? Mom? And before they even ask the question, you know it's going to be something ridiculous, something out there, and the answer already is no. Look, I don't know what the question is, but the answer is no. Right? We do that as parents with our children. And Jesus could have done that with these guys because he knows the exact question that these guys are going to ask. Just tell them no. But notice Jesus still allows them to ask the question. Why? Why would he do that? Because he wants them to openly state their desire to show what was in their heart. He wants them to put on display their spiritual shallowness so that he could teach them a lesson. If he would have just said, look, I know what you're going to ask, and the answer is no, then their heart would not have been revealed and the lesson would not have been learned. So Jesus says, what do you want? What do you want, guys? And they said in verse 37, grant that we may sit, one on your right, one on your left, in your glory. What are these guys asking for here? They want privilege in the kingdom of God. They want the high seat in the kingdom of God. They want honor. They want to be great. Now think about all the things that they have experienced up to this point. Especially being a part of that inner circle. Being one of the three. They've experienced a lot with Christ. 
And now they want the seat of honor and privilege. But notice they don't even ask for the seat. Remember, these guys are called the sons of thunder. It's <laughs> the reason why they're called the sons of thunder. They just say it. They're bold. They're rash. Notice what they say there. They say, grant. Grant to us. Grant that we may sit. That word grant there in the Greek is an imperative. That is, it is a command. That is, they are commanding that Jesus give them the seat on his right and on his left. In a royal court, this would be the seat of honor. To be seated on the right or on the left, that would be the seat of honor. But notice how kind they are with Jesus. They're not going to tell Jesus who gets what seat. Notice that. They're going to let Jesus choose for them. Such nice guys. Jesus, we'll let you choose who gets to sit on the right and the left. Grant that we might sit on the right and the left, but we're not going to tell you who's going to sit on your right and on your left. We'll leave that up to you. Verse 37, one on your right and one on your left. We just want the seat of honor in your kingdom. But we'll let you choose who sits where. What a selfish thing for these men to say. Selfish. Selfish of these brothers. What are they implying in this question? Notice they are implying that the other ten guys who are with them, the other twelve apostles, have not made it. They're not good enough. Grant that we might sit on your right and your left. The other ten, we don't care where they sit. But they don't get the seat on the right and the left because, well, Jesus, grant that to us. We're the greatest of all the twelve. Remember, that's what these guys have been arguing. That's what they've been doing. That's what they've been going after. As they've been walking along, they're arguing with each other. They're fighting like a bunch of little kids. Who is the greatest? I'm the greatest. No, you're not the greatest. I'm the greatest. No, Jesus loves me more. <laughs> that's the attitude of these guys. And for James and John to ask this question and really demand that Jesus give them that seat, the seat of honor, they're saying the other ten don't deserve it. What a selfish thing for them to think. All these guys can think about is who? Themselves. That's it. Totally self-centered. Totally egocentric. Totally prideful. And as one commentator, one commentator points out, it would have been a nobler thing to ask for work in the kingdom. Lord, can we have a shovel and a broom and serve in your kingdom? <laughs> that would have been a better question for them to ask. A nobler question for them to ask would have been to ask for work. But they are so focused on self that they didn't want that. What did they want? They wanted honor and authority. They haven't learned anything about humility from Christ. Nothing. So far in their life, there is the perfect example of humility for them day by day by day as they're walking around and teaching and ministering and doing all of these things every single day, day after day. There is the perfect example of humility. There he is right in your midst and you guys have learned nothing. Absolutely nothing. They never got it. Now, why would they say, in your glory? Well, remember, these guys were on the Mount of Transfiguration. What did they see on the Mount of Transfiguration? The glory of Christ. They saw Him in His glory. 
but they did not understand what Jesus had just told them about going to Jerusalem to die. They didn't get it. They didn't understand that. And remember, in their theology, a dead Messiah was not there. That wasn't a part of their theology. And so they're thinking that the kingdom was right around the corner. We're going to go into Jerusalem. Jesus is going to establish His throne, and we want to be on His right and His left. Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem, He's going to unveil His glory, and He's going to establish His throne as the Messiah very shortly, and we want those seats. That's what these guys are thinking. And sure, they were in a sense telling Jesus that they're going to follow Him all the way to the end, right? We're going to follow you all the way into the kingdom, Jesus. We're not going to leave you. We want to be right there with you but they also wanted the glory. They wanted the honor. They wanted the authority. And they were selfishly seeking this honor. So how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Their question was in ignorance. They had no clue what they were asking. It was so foolish for them to ask this question because of the cost involved. They didn't get it. They didn't want the cost. They simply wanted the honor. That's what they were after. They wanted the crown. And they wanted the crown without the cost. And so Jesus tells them, you have no idea what you're asking. None. No idea. Receiving honor in the kingdom is not a manner of just asking Jesus for it. That's what they thought. They thought that they could just put in reservations for the seats. And they're the first ones to put in reservations, so they get it. It's all theirs. They're in. But that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. Jesus then asked them a two-part question. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? What does Jesus mean by this? Well, he's talking about the cup of wrath that he's about to drink at the cross. He's talking here about his suffering. His suffering at the cross. This cup that he is going to drink is the cup of the wrath of of God. That's why Jesus in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is, the Father treated the Son as if he committed every sin that you and I have ever committed. And he's going to drink the wrath of God upon himself. And some of you are sitting here this morning with the wrath of God abiding upon you because your faith is not in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And he calls you today to turn from your sin and put your faith in him. And if you do that, the wrath of God will be turned from you. It will no longer abide upon you. But if you do not repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God will remain upon you and you will stand before God in judgment one day and you will deserve God's wrath. And He will give it out to you in judgment. But He calls you today to come to Him. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ will cover you. All of your sins. And the wrath of God will no longer remain upon you. Because Christ took it for all those who believe. And that's what He did there at the cross. And that's what He's talking about here. That cup 
Jesus never committed a single sin. And yet the Father's wrath was poured out on His Son so that all who come to faith in Christ will never have to endure the wrath of God. And Jesus drank every ounce of it, every last drop of God's wrath to save sinners like you and me. And so we asked these guys, are you able to drink that cup? And then he's got a second part to his question, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, Jesus here is not talking about water baptism. He's not talking about what we're going to do in a couple weeks when we go to Northwestern and have baptisms there. It's not what Jesus is talking about here. That word baptized in the Greek is the word baptizo, which means to plunge. To plunge. And what Jesus is talking about here is being plunged into suffering. To be consumed with suffering. Are you guys able to suffer the way that I'm going to suffer? Because if you want to have honor in the kingdom, first you must suffer. You must suffer. That's how it works in the kingdom. Jesus is saying here, to the extent that you suffer is the extent that you are rewarded. Your reward will correspond to your suffering. Are you guys able to do this? Can you drink this and be submerged in this suffering? Because to the extent that these guys want their glory and honor, that is the extent that they must suffer. If you want the crown, you must be willing to suffer the cost. And how do these guys foolishly answer? Look at what they say in verse 39. We are able. Oh, we're able to do that, Jesus. This is such an arrogant answer. It's arrogance on display. Now, no doubt that this shows that they're loyal to Christ, at least in word. But when rubber meets the road, listen to what Mark tells us in Mark 14 and verse 50. It says this, And they all left him and fled. You know when that was? At the arrest of Jesus. When they came to arrest Jesus and they saw suffering now right before them, you know what the twelve did? They left. They fled. Suffering was right there in front of them and they said, Nope, not today. <laughs> We're out of here. And they left Jesus alone there to go and suffer and die. They left Him. Suffering came and they abandoned Christ. But, but guys, remember you said we are able? Remember that when you made that statement? You said you were able. Well, eventually they would embrace their suffering. While it didn't happen there at the cross, Jesus continues on in verse 39 and He says, The cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. What Jesus is doing here is He's prophesying for them. He's telling them their future. And listen, James and John, here is your future. These guys eventually did suffer. They did become martyrs. In fact, James was the first apostle the first apostle to be martyred. In Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, he was martyred by King Herod. The first apostle to be martyred. John was the last apostle to die. And he was banished to the island of Patmos. That island was like a prison island. And tradition tells us that he died an old man in hard labor as he suffered persecution. Eventually, these guys would drink suffering and be baptized in suffering. But at this point in their life, they didn't get it. They didn't understand it. All they wanted here was the seat. They wanted the seat without the suffering. 
Jesus tells them, you are going to suffer. And by the way, Jesus says in verse 40, those seats that you're asking about, those aren't mine to give. Those seats aren't even mine to give. And what Christ does here is he defers to the authority of the Father. And he says that those seats there are for those in whom the Father has prepared them for. Those seats that the Father has prepared, those who sit on those seats will be prepared to sit on them. And how will they be prepared? Suffering. Through the suffering that they endure. Who is it going to be? We don't know. We don't know who it is. Will it be James and John? Maybe. We don't know. Will it be any of us? No. Have any of us suffered like these men have suffered? Have any of us suffered the way that the martyrs have suffered? Being burned at the stake for the sake of Christ? Those guys were willing to suffer. We don't know who's going to be on the right and the left. We'll find out one day, right? We'll find out. And so there is the encounter that Jesus has with these selfish brothers who want these seats of honor and what we have called the selfish aspiration. Let's look now at point number two. Point number two, the selfish reaction. Look at verse 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. The other ten now hear what has been requested by James and John, and they're not happy about it. And remember, this is not the first time that they've talked about being the greatest in the kingdom. That's what they're talking about back in Mark chapter 9. There was a dispute that Luke tells us in that account as to which one is the greatest. They fought with one another. There was fighting going on amongst themselves as to who was the greatest. And the ten have just overheard James and John asking if they can be the greatest in the kingdom. It was no longer a dispute amongst their little group. James and John were bold enough and foolish enough to go right to the source and ask Jesus himself, themselves. Look, forget about this fighting. James, let's just go ask Jesus. Oh, and you know what we should do too? Let's get mom involved. <laughs> then he'll say yes and he'll give us the seat that we want. And they go there. And they ask Jesus. They go right to the source. And the other disciples are thinking, how dare they ask him a question like that and bring their mother in and on, on the situation? How dare they do that? These ten are not happy. In fact, it says they were indignant. That word means to be aroused, to be indignant, to be angry. It caused anger to rise up to swell up within these ten. And they become angry toward James and John. Why? Why do they become angry toward James and John? Not because they couldn't believe that James and John would be so selfish in asking a question like this, but because their selfish pride was hurt, and they were angry that James and John got to Jesus first to ask the question. No doubt they would have asked the question if they had the opportunity or the boldness to go and ask him. They were already fighting amongst themselves as to who's the greatest. But to see James and John go and ask first, how dare they go and ask him that question? How dare they go and ask Jesus to be first in the kingdom? And there was jealousy and bitterness towards James and John. And it caused them to become angry. Angry with these guys. Which is always what happens when someone's pride is hurt or confronted, right? Your pride is hurt, what do you do? 
you become angry. That's the response. I can't believe that person said that to me. Or I can't believe that person got the promotion. And instead of humbly receiving instruction or being okay that the other person got the promotion, because our pride is hurt, we become what? Angry. That's what happens with these guys. These guys become angry with James and John. They were hurt by the very fact that James and John would have the bravery and boldness to ask Jesus to be first. Which implied then that those ten would not be first. They don't get the seat. And it would imply that James and John are greater than them. Because for those two guys to go and ask Jesus this question, what they are saying to the other ten is, we are better than you, and we're just going to go ask him. In fact, we're going to just go tell him, please give us the seats. (laughs) They're angry because they didn't ask first. It's an ongoing competition with these guys. These are prideful men who need to learn a lesson about humility. So what does Jesus do? Look at verse 42. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. Time for another private lesson with Jesus. (laughs) These guys needed it often. Time for another teaching time with Jesus. And Jesus called all 12 of them together to teach them a lesson. Now, notice this. Why does Jesus call them to himself? Why does Jesus call these 12 over to them himself? Well, because what's going on in the group at this point? They are all what? Divided. They're all divided. And so Jesus has to gather them up and say, boys, come on over here. All of you together. Stop being divisive. You need to come together and come over here because I need to teach you a lesson. Their pride and their anger caused them to divide amongst each other, which is what pride always does, right? It's what it always does. Pride always causes division. Listen to Proverbs 13.10. With pride comes only contention, but wisdom is with the well-advised. Pride causes contention and division. And so Jesus calls them together and teaches them about the rulers of the Gentile nations. And how do those rulers rule? With humility? No. (laughs) Of course not. The rulers of the nations, do they rule with humility? Never. Never. They use their authority and they lord it over the people. That's what the world does. And they go to great lengths to gain power for themselves. Worldly people don't get their power from being humble. We saw this in the presidential debates, right? There wasn't an ounce of humility in that room that night. Not an ounce. It was full of pride. Full of pride and arrogance, and they were seeking their own power at the expense of the other. Right? That's what we saw on display for us. And that's how the Gentiles rule. That's how the nations rule. That's exactly what they do. They're not humble, they're prideful. And they use their authority and they lord it over people. And Jesus says, that's how the so-called great ones of the world rule. That's how they react. They are selfish men who are full of themselves. But that is not the way that Christ's followers are to be. Which leads to our third and final point, the selfless 
illustration. The selfless illustration. Look at verse 43. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Jesus takes the world's teaching and He turns it on its head. The world is full of pride and the world is always self-serving. And those who think they have reached great heights in this world are prideful and gain their so-called greatness out of arrogance and suppressing other people around them. But Jesus says, it's not this way among you. Now notice Jesus doesn't say, it will not be this way among you, but that it is not this way among you. Notice that. It's key. Is. Why would he say is? Because it's always been. Because it's currently not this way among you. It's currently not this way in the kingdom of God. And it's never been this way in the kingdom of God. Humility is and always has been the way to become great in the kingdom of God. Humility. This is not a new teaching that Jesus is giving these guys. It's obviously new to these disciples who've experienced leaders who seek greatness through pride and self-righteousness. But all throughout the Old Testament, God has been teaching humility. God has put on display that He loves humility. Listen to Isaiah 66, verse 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Or 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sins and will hear their land. Or Proverbs 29, 23. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain, listen to this, honor. Honor. Do you want honor? I think we do. God says, be humble. That's the way you obtain it. God has always taught humility. And God's people are always to pursue humility. And Christ gives three illustrations of those who are honored in His kingdom. First, He says, if you want to become great, Jesus says, be a servant. Be a servant. That's the first illustration the illustration of a servant. The word there is diakonos. This is a humble, submissive, personal service. Someone who is an assistant to others. That word diakonos in the Greek is where we get the word deacon from. Deacons who serve in the church. That's all they are, is recognized servants in the church. But Jesus here is not talking about an office in a church. He's talking about a position to be an assistant to others. To be a humble and submissive Personal servant of other people. You want to be great? Serve other people. And then the second illustration, if you want to become first, Jesus says you must be a slave. First a servant, second a slave. That word there in the Greek is the word doulos. This is a slave who is devoted wholly to another's will to the disregard of his own interests. This is the lowest of low positions to be a slave. You must become low if you want to be placed high. You must become last if you want to be first. You must be a slave of all. That is all people. And see yourself lower than everybody else. If you want to be first in the kingdom of God. Now, now notice Jesus doesn't condemn wanting to be great or be first. Notice that. He doesn't condemn that. 
That desire is not condemned. But the motive and the means by which someone becomes great is what is condemned. If the motive is so that you can be pleasing in man's eyes and receive honor and praise from man, Jesus says, that's condemned. That's not the way you do it. If the means is pride and arrogance, that is condemned. That's not how you do it. But humbling yourself and serving the Lord to please Him alone and desiring His will in all things, Jesus says that person will be great and they will be first. And that person will receive a crown and honor. And isn't that what we all want? We want the crown, right? That's a good thing to desire the crown. But in order to have the crown, and specifically with the crown of salvation, what did we have to do first? Humble ourselves to realize and recognize that we need a Savior. That's the only way you get the crown. It's through humility. And if you want to see a perfect illustration of that humility, look no further than Christ Himself. That's the third illustration for us. Not only do we see the illustration of a servant and a slave, but third, a Savior. A Savior. This famous, often quoted verse, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Christ came to do the will of the Father and be pleasing in His sight. Christ came as the ultimate humble servant. And although He is the greatest man to ever walk the face of the earth, He did not come to be served, but to do what? To serve. To serve others. This great one, this God-man who is first among all creation, this one whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as Lord, He is the greatest servant of all. In fact, I want you to see this for yourself. Turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Paul gives us this amazing example of what it means to be a humble servant as he's writing to the church there at Philippi and he's telling them that there should be no disunity among you because there is pride and where there is pride there is disunity but it shouldn't be that way among you it says you need to have unity with one another maintaining the same love united in spirit intent on one purpose Look what he says in verse 5. He gives us a perfect illustration. He says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, Being found in appearance as a man, he did what? humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is the perfect illustration of humility for us. He was the most humble man to ever walk the face of the earth. And what did God the Father do? He highly exalted him and made his name the greatest name that every knee, yes, that it means believer and unbeliever, will bow before Christ and they will declare that he is Lord. Everyone, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because He's the greatest. And He humbled Himself 
to the lowest position to become a sacrifice for you and I. Jesus is the greatest example of what it means to be a humble servant that does all to please God. Everything that He did was to please the Father. And God highly exalted Him because He gave the greatest sacrifice. In closing, Christ is teaching His disciples that if they want to be great, they need to be humble. We need to be humble people as well. Don't let pride get in your way of serving God and loving other people. Andrew Murray gave a near-perfect definition of humility when he said this, Humility is perfect quietness of heart. It is to expect nothing, to wonder at nothing that is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I am blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in the Lord where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and am at peace as in a deep sea of calmness when all around and above is trouble. The humble person is, listen to this, not one who thinks lowly of himself. He simply does not think of himself at all. May we be humble servants of our King. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this amazing Word. Father, thank You that You have sent Your Son who humbled Himself by taking on flesh and coming to serve us. Coming to serve sinners like us. And yet He never, ever, ever sinned. But He gave His life for sinners like us. Thank You for Christ who is our humble servant our humble Savior, our humble King. Father, I pray that we would learn from Him and that we would not be selfish and prideful and arrogant as we see those apostles were. But I pray that we would be a humble people who would love You, love other people, and serve each other for Your glory in your glory alone. We thank you for our time here this morning in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.